magicians, wizards, apparitions, adult language, and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not enter the house of mystery. All right, then. On the show. All right, hello. Welcome, everyone, to the House of Mystery. This is the John Constantine and Friends podcast. I am here dancing naked in the House of Mystery. Bisexual demon butler is also dancing naked, not with me and not beside me. We're, we're five feet apart. I'm I'm too much of a macho man for that shit. <laughs> so dumb. David is in the next room, and he does have uh, what's it called? Vision that you can see through things. <laughs> and I'm making sure to avert my eyes. Yes, thank you. I appreciate that. All right, so. We are here today to talk about a couple, well, not a couple, one major Netflix series that we have all been waiting for for a very long time. It's decades in the making, and they finally managed to accomplish getting it done, and that is the Sandman adaptation that debuted earlier this month, or I should say last month now, on Netflix. Now, if you're new to our show, I welcome you to the House of Mystery. We cover a wide variety of John Constantine and Constantine-adjacent content. You can find this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search House of Mystery. We do prefer iTunes and Spotify. Those are our preferred feeds because of their rating and review system. So please take a moment if you like our show or if you hate our show, and give us a review. Even a one-star helps us out. But I prefer four, please. Don't (laughs) don't mess up our ratings. Okay, so as I had said at the top of the show, we are going to tackle the Netflix Sandman adaptation that has literally been decades in the making. Yes. With numerous previous adaptations being scrapped throughout the years, But all of that has led, or I would say blazed a path to what I would call a near-perfect adaptation. The season consists of 10 episodes plus a surprise bonus 11th episode, which I felt was very much on par with the comic book form. Yes. You know, the bonus episode or the bonus issue. We've all read storylines where they give you that bonus issue. So I thought that was fun. The series is produced and developed for Netflix by Neil Gaiman and David Goyer with Alan Heinberg serving as showrunner. Essentially, he's the lead writer and music by David Buckley. The Sandman is an American fantasy drama television series based on the 1989 through 1996 comic book written by Neil Gaiman and published, of course, through DC Comics. Uh, The series was developed by Gaiman, David S. Goyer, and Alan Heinberg for Netflix and is produced by DC Entertainment and Warner Brothers Television. Although, if you're not aware that Sandman is part of the DC world, you would never know. (laughs) Because it doesn't open up with any DC titles. It doesn't have a DC title card. Nope. Uh, Neil Gaiman has pretty much removed 
the DC eccentric elements from the series. And we're going to get into why he did that possibly and whether or not it worked ultimately for the series. Um, but overall, Sandman tells a story of dream Morpheus. He is the Sandman. Yep. Now we're not breaking down each episode individually, but instead we're going to focus on parts of the series. For example, this specific episode today will focus predominantly on episodes one through five with a segment specifically dedicated to Joanna Constantine for obvious reasons. This is a John Constantine show after all. Yes. The plan is to spend the next 50 to 60 minutes discussing as much as we can before our time is up. And then we will continue in a later episode. I'm not quite sure how these discussions will end up in, in the way of how many episode parts, but I'm thinking it's probably going to be three to four. Does that sound right, Dave, with, with the amount of content we want to get through and, and talk about? Oh, absolutely. Because if the thing about Sandman is the series itself has so much substance to it that that was one of the things about the series. I was, ho I was very curious to see if they can transition that type of storytelling into visual storytelling, into a live action adaptation. Well, at least do it. In a coherent fashion. In a coherent fashion. Yeah. And by God, they actually succeeded in, do, in just doing that. And that's why three to four episodes of us covering the series, I think, is enough to cover the key points that we want to cover. Yeah, at least the things that are relevant to our specific podcast. Yeah. Well, Dave, you've already taken us there. So why don't you continue to share your initial thoughts on... Sandman, try to stick specifically within the one to five episode range. The one to five episode range, I was so excited to see this series on Netflix with all the news that was prior coming out. And a lot of people were making a lot of chatter about the choice of casting and they were doing all this. But at the end of the day, I basically told myself, this is all being led by Gaiman himself. So he had the choice. It's his story. If he if he's tweaking something, there's an obvious reason for it. He's still going to keep the essence of the story because that's his, that's his, you know, that's his baby. And so with that in mind, I basically went into the series pretty much at ease. There was no hesitation. And, and from episode one, from the get go, it caught me and it just, dragged me along i was like i could not stop watching it at that point after episode one i had to watch episode two i had to watch episode three and it was like almost the one of the very few times i've ever covered a series where i i had to binge it i'm not a binge watcher i i'm a person that has to i have to watch an episode and then i have to take it maybe a step back take a break from watching it Sandman, for the longest time, this is the first series in a very, very long time that has made me into a binge watcher where I just couldn't stop. I wanted to know where, where the story was going, even though I knew what the story was. Yeah, but it's still fun because, yeah, the adaptation is pretty fucking loyal to the source material, but it doesn't matter because most of us, the people who have read the comic books, 
we, we have done it years ago and maybe there are certain aspects that aren't completely clear. And also we're watching with the eye to see what he keeps, what he doesn't. And then we're almost watching it from a different perspective. What is he going to do with the story that we remember? Yeah. And especially with, you know, like how it's visualized in the comic can be very difficult to transition into a live action. Oh, of course. Yes. Some of the stuff I remember us talking about anticipating the series and in prior shows and I kept and I kept reiterating, I do not know how he how Gaiman's gonna get his imagery down on visual of, of visual storytelling. My concern was the same, but it had more to do with budget. Yeah. Because like think about it. For those familiar with the original storyline of Sandman, there is a lot of high concept points where you're like going, how do you turn that type of, you know, literal stir uh, uh literal stir uh, storytelling and turn it into a visual storytelling for like a tv show purposes one of the key points was like the battle between him and lucifer where the you know oh i turn into this thing and you turn into that thing i turn into this thing and i you turn into that thing how do you tra- how do you do that i feel like a lot of it I feel like the way Neil Gaiman wrote Sandman lends itself well to television form Mm -hmm. because his issues are very tidy. There are obvious allusions to continuation. Obviously, that's the nature of the story, but it also is close-ended. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end in each issue. There's a definitive, definitive closure with each issue with, obviously, the allusions to continuing. That's a given. But they're such, they're just written so tidy that it it worked by taking essentially one, maybe one and a half issues and combining it into an episode. Because I know there's a, I don't remember the exactly each storyline and what issue number it was in, but I know there was a couple that include a couple episodes that included maybe one or two issues. He merged a couple of them. I think one of them is the diner episode, twenty four seven. I think he merge two issues into that episode yes so just the the nature of how it was written it lent itself very well to the television form in fact we're going to talk about this a little bit later uh, when it comes to the the history of this adaptation originally it was going to be a movie and it only would have worked as a movie dave if the studio that Neil Gaiman was able to sell the idea to was fully committed to telling the story, much like Warner Brothers was dedicated in what, 1999? Ni- no, not 1999. Uh, yeah, 1999, yeah. 2000 with uh, J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. You know, they were committed to telling all of the Harry Potter story. Mm hmm. And that's why we ended up getting, what, like 10 movies? Yeah, seven to 10 movies. They were dedicated to it. So if Neil Gaiman could guarantee that a studio was going to be dedicated to telling the Sandman story over the next 10 plus years, then I would say, yes, give it to a studio and let them start, you know, hammering it out and fleshing it out for the purposes of a theatrical run. But if not, then this is is the, the best 
direction to take. Oh, absolutely. I mean, after this, I mean, even prior to this, they released that audio drama that me and you talked about too, that audio adaptation. And that was well done too. And Gaiman had his hand in that one. And it's amazing because now at this point, you see that he was able to tell his story visually inside of a series. Now it's now it's not done. It's only season one. But the fact that what he's been able to pull off, I mean, it it, it far exceeded my expectations of like the thought of him doing a movie. At this point, do we need a movie adaptation of it? We have this. Yeah. <laughs> it is a shame, though, when you watch the series and you see how gorgeous the visuals yes. are. Just mind-blowing visual effects, amazing cinematography, and the cinephile in me, the, the movie geek, it is like getting more agitated and agitated because I can never enjoy anything as is. Because as I'm watching this, I'm like, this is so amazingly beautiful. Yeah. Too bad it wasn't. In the fucking theater. In the theater. I start getting angry because how can you not want to see this in the theater? Yeah. Could you imagine the scenes of hell oh where he's God. with, so where he's good. battling, where he's quote unquote battling Lucifer. Yeah. All those effects on the big screen would have been amazing. That scene came out way better than I could have imagined. Yes. Yes. I mean, when she, when uh, Lucifer turns into the dire wolf, yeah. to begin things, I'm like, going, Okay, this, that does not look that bad. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. It was pretty good. Okay, so I want to start officially on the thought pertaining to adaptation and the nature of the streaming platform because I feel like it's appropriate and goes right in line with what you were talking about when it comes to adaptation. I want to say that in an age where streaming platforms have diluted the television writing process down to simple binge worthy moments, we have a series like Sandman that adheres to the norms of television writing. What do I mean by that? A lot of shows have thrown out the tried and true craft of writing for seasons of television that are governed by loose narrative structure that meander and have murky per episode intent in layman's terms streaming and binge entertainment have created a general lazy attitude toward writing with a mere single goal to get to the final episode i've been saying this for several years now and and finally film and media academics have caught on and are now attempting to study the trend because the nature of streaming came out of nowhere and it has fostered a group of writers who haven't been thrown into the fire of true network television where they must adhere to specific rules of structure that have been the method of writing for going on almost a hundred years. You know that saying, don't reinvent the wheel. Yes. Streaming has literally reinvented the wheel. They're trying to. And because of that, we have a lot of beautiful looking shows with bigger budgets, but they suffer when it comes to story. Yes. Because they're designed for binging. So because of that, they don't have that conclusiveness that you need that allows a better structure per episode. Mm -hmm. 
And it's taken a long time for people to realize this. I've been saying it since, well, I don't know, 2016, 2017. Uh, and now with Disney Plus, HBO Max, what's the other ones? Hulu, Amazon. Hulu. There are Amazon. so many streaming platforms now that more and more people are seeing those red flags and realizing that a lot of these shows aren't actually that good. It's tricking you. It's it's hot girl mentality. You know yes. how like you see that girl with all that makeup on and mm -hmm. you're like, oh, she's hot. But then she takes the makeup off. And I'm like, oh, how dare you trick me like that? <laughs> you know, it's like that. It's not really that good. Yes. My, my point, I guess, is, is that it is refreshing to watch a well-written series yeah. that, that actually sticks and adheres to the basic principles of television writing. To continue your, to continue your example, Mike, essentially Sandman is the hot girl, and when she removes her makeup, she's still smoking she's hot. She's still hot. Oh, you still you, you take her home and you have sex with her oh. and you wake up the next morning and go, you're still beautiful. You're still hot. You're still hot. I didn't have beer goggles on. <laughs> <laughs> Praise the maker. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, ultimately what helped with, I suppose, the, the structure and the well-written aspects of Sandman, as I said a few moments ago, has to do with how tight the Sandman source material is in itself. Yeah. Well, it, and it makes sense too, because I've always told people is like, when you read Sandman, it seems like you're reading it really condensed and it's fast, but there's so much going on. It forces you to go back and reread it to make sure, Hey, what did I miss? Right. It, it, because each issue of the source material, it, it can stand on its own. Absolutely. In terms of story, there's a definitive beginning, middle, and, and end. end. And because Heinberg did an excellent job adapting it, the structure and ultimately the per episode aspects of the series is strong mm -hmm. because he just followed what Gaiman laid out. And if you think about it, I mean, it. Which the, doesn't always work, mind you. Many times you have to you play fast and loose with the source material because, as we have said numerous times on countless shows, uh, different mediums are different, obviously. Different. And you can't expect to adapt a book or a comic book sometimes 100% accurately to screen because it's a different medium. You're dealing with a visual medium. Mm -hmm. But as I said, the Sandman issues, it feels like Neil Gaiman always wanted this to be something other than a comic book because oh, absolutely. It, it, the way it was written. Well, because like, especially when you take a look at the original issues and then you, you, you actually break it down. It feels like a episodic format. Yes. Of television. Yeah. Where, Episodic have, serial, a little bit of a hybrid. Yeah, where we have like, okay, we have this main story, which is Morpheus getting his items back, right? right. That is the main right. story arc. But in the meantime, each of the each of the items represents a different story, story yep. that is to kind of like elaborate more on the character of Morpheus. But David, now you're exactly right. And some of the best... TV shows are written like that. And I'm going to, I'm going to go to one that pretty much everyone has watched X-Files. Oh you, yeah. You have the ever evolving mythos of the conspiracy. Every season you have something dealing with the big conspiracy that propels, motivates 
the the protagonist, which is Mulder. Mm-hmm. But then in between each episode, with each episode, you have close-ended stories as well. Yes. Or stories that can be told and stand on their own. Yeah. With a slight continuance alluded to in the end for the bigger story. And that's how Sandman's written, essentially, in comic book form. Mm-hmm. And that's why it does work, Dave. You're right. That's why it works on uh, on streaming, or the, I should say in a TV format. And the perfect example, I think, in 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 regards to the comic and this series, especially the first five episodes, is the Constantine episode. The Constantine episode can be held on its own because you're dealing with a story. You're still dealing with Morpheus trying to get his items back, but also you told this standalone story and introduction of Joanna Constantine where it's about, it was interesting that they went the route they did because they, they, they kept the original story intact, which is John's past relationship with his, with his ex lover is the one that draws him in yeah. with Morpheus. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that episode a little bit more. And yeah, bit. and and the whole story has its own little own little story arc. Yeah. And but still it does not forget about like who the main character is, which is Morpheus. Well, because while you're dealing with the immediate, let's say, narrative, they're not forgetting about Morpheus. In mm-hmm. fact, if anything, the way they they had him essentially observe and investigate it actually helped build out his characterization. Yes. Even though he wasn't doing a lot in certain episodes, just he still was exactly the weirdest thing. The mere act of being present and through observing, you learn a lot about his character. Yeah. And that's the thing I thought was going to be really cool about the series is like, I wanted to know if fans, especially if fans are not familiar with Sandman could gravitate towards a character like Morpheus because like, it was interesting when I watched it with my wife, who is not in, who does not know anything about the Sandman universe. She doesn't know anything about the comics, and I was watching her, seeing if she was engaged at least with the characters. And after she watched so many episodes with uh, with me, Alice says, "So what do you think?" He says, "I don't know why, but I really like the character of Morpheus, even though he doesn't do anything. It's because he's so hot." And dreamy. And it, it, I said, I, I joked around. I said that. I said, she said, no, as a character, it's kind of like, <laughs> you know that he's doing something, but he's not, he's not doing something physical. What's, it's almost his superpower. Yeah. And she said her, his superpowers is his mind, which yeah. is like, it's, it makes him, makes him really impressive as a character. Yeah. Well, the actor that played him. Oh, great. I thought Tom I thought, Sturridge was, is that his last name? I think it's Stur, Stur, uh, Stur, Stur what is say it? it? Sturridge? Sturridge. Yeah. So all that being said, on top of all that greatness, we also had amazing cinematography and uh-huh. the, the chosen framing was so perfect along with the careful attention to the mise-en-scene and iconography, mm-hmm. and then the casting of Tom, Tom Sturridge, uh, David Thulis. Is that how you say his last name? The guy that played um, John D. John D., yes. Then Jenna Coleman, Gwendolyn Christie, just to name a few. The casting, despite all the controversy surrounding the, the so-called gender bending or gender swapping, yeah. 
I, I thought was very well done. Great casting overall. And you can't forget Boyd Holbrook. I mean, his Corinthian. Oh, yeah. Corinthian is freaking awesome, dude. Everyone he, dude, did a good job. But yes, he was good. He the, was legitimately um, disturbing at disturbing. times. Disturbing. <laughs> And, and that was the best part is like, I, I was telling, uh, I was telling my friends, like, just keep watching. Corinthians, not really a bad guy per se, but he is very demented. <laughs> he was great. I loved him. So let's talk casting and acting briefly a little bit more in depth, because if one had to point to any controversy, any one controversy pertaining to this show, it was from the casting side. Yeah, there were complaints related to the so-called gender swapping of various characters to name just two of several Wendelin Christie's Lucifer and Jenna Coleman's Constantine, both of which I can give two shits. I'm, <laughs> I can give two shits. Too. I'm about what's best for the immediate IP, what they're trying to do with the show in question. And it does take a little bit of um, convincing at times for myself when, it, when you're dealing with issues pertaining to John Constantine, because I am an Uber John Constantine yeah. fan. But when you take a step back and you look at the, the, the piece as what Gaiman was attempting to do and trying to do, you can see the logic behind his decisions and you can understand why he did certain things. Cause ultimately his decisions worked out better probably for this particular adaptation. As far as Lucifer goes, I mean, technically the character is genderless anyway. It's genderless, yeah. And that, that one didn't bother me because of that. You should have saw the trolls. And, and a lot of it had to do with people who weren't comic book readers who just remembered the Lucifer series. Yes. And I will gladly jump over there with those Lucifer fans and say, yes, that TV series was fun as hell. Cause yes. it was, it was, it, it was very well done. It wasn't really the Lucifer from the comic books. Exactly. But it still was a good, really good show. So I think that's the reason why a lot of people were complaining about the Lucifer side because they felt like, well, why don't you just connect the universes and make it work? Because Gaiman's universe doesn't connect to that Lucifer universe. <laughs> and then when it comes to Joanna Constantine, I was fine with what they did from a producing and writing standpoint. It makes sense. You're dealing with a 10 to 11 episode series an episode order like this doesn't give the writers much wiggle room to properly develop an endless array of characters, especially since the story is ultimately about dream yes. about Morpheus. It's so about Morpheus, you have to consolidate and setting aside the licensing aspect for a second. It makes more sense to develop one character properly and use them appropriately. So by merging the two characters together I feel like ultimately it brought the greatest goodness to the overall series. It, it made the, it made the story more consistent because like, yes, we didn't yes. focus. It's now not about focusing on it's John Constantine. No, it's focusing on the importance of his bloodline, the bloodline of the Constantines. Mm -hmm. And that's what, I, that's why I was like going number one, Joanna Constantine is not a brand new character. And it's, right. it, it was not a merger of characters right off the bat. There is a Joanna Constantine in the Sandman universe. In fact, she appears, what, 
issue seven, I want to say, yeah. in the Sandman series. Lady Joanna Constantine. Is when she first makes her appearance. And in, in, a, in a funny sense, Gaiman created Lady Joanna Constantine to kind of be a homage to Alan Moore's Constantine. Mm-hmm. That's why he created her. And the fact that basically now he he's able to bring his creation and take the character that he really admired and put them together and kind of say, okay, their legacy is what matters. It's yeah. not about, it's not about, you know, John, it's not about Joanna. It's about their family. Yeah. Their family's messed up. Yeah. And <laughs> David, just to back you up, because I agree when you're dealing with a relatively short episode order, we don't have time to delve in. It works in comic book form, but with television, you have to properly flesh out characters. Yes. And if you had Joanna Constantine pop in an issue or episode six without any development, we'd be like, who the fuck is this character? Like, mm-hmm. oh, this is bad writing. You're just going to drop a fucking character in on us. Yeah. And then, and then let's say they, they decided, you know what? We do need to give her some development. Well, then we're going to have a whole other episode where they have to take away from the main storyline so they can develop this character and so that we can understand our backstory. Who who doesn't show up throughout the, who doesn't show up all the time. Right. So by merging the two characters, the because John Constantine was introduced in the Sandman storyline, I believe in issue three. Yes. You had Joanna Constantine intru- introduced, I believe, in issue seven. So if you merge the characters, you kill two birds with one stone, you save time, and you allow the relevant story pertaining to Sandman to progress unhindered by much needed if you did it character development. So I think this way by consolidating, it just allowed them to do more with less episodes. Yeah. And and in a lot of ways, this is one of those, this is one of the elements that I was, I'm not going to say I was worried about because as I said, I had complete faith in, in uh, game gaming. Yeah. But this is one of those elements. I was curious what he was going to do. And I thought, and after this, I'm like this is the per- this was the perfect way of doing it yeah. because he didn't even change the story of episode <laughs> of issue number three. I know where John Constantine well, is. Well, according to him, he did. Yes, uh, which I which I thought was funny because I, listen, I understand Neil Gaiman's trying to combat trolls, trolls, and when he gave the excuse, it's not a gender swap role. Yeah, because it's a totally different storyline <laughs> and a different origin story. I'm like, well, okay, Neil Gaiman, I understand you're annoyed with the trolls, but that makes no sense. That makes no sense because that's essentially saying that every single Batman movie we've watched isn't the real Batman because his origin story is slightly different. different. And that's the thing is kind of like honestly doing it this way focused the element or the. The essence of the story, which is just like what you said, is it has to maintain the fact that our main character is Dream. Mm-hmm. It's about Morpheus's journey. Yeah. We can have this fun stuff with Constantine and Joanna Constantine and John Constantine, but it should never deviate from the story of the Sandman. Yeah. All right. So let's move past the controversy and talk about Jenna Coleman and how they adapted and merged the two Constantines <laughs> into one. I will say that whoever tries to tackle a Constantine live action series, let's say it's going to happen. We know 
even with this whole Warner Brothers discovery shakeup, and they're probably putting a lot of that stuff on hold for the foreseeable future, we know eventually we're going to get it. Yeah. Whoever tackles it next, they're going to have some steep, or they will and do have some steep competition because Heinberg and Gaiman just showed everyone how it's done. And the bar has now been set from the opening seconds of episode three, which <laughs> featured Coleman's Constantine. Yes. The imagery was guided by a, a type of Christian or Judeo-Christian iconography. They added to this overall allegorical intent of the scenes. I mean, the hallway scene with the exit sign yes. and the shafts of light emitting from beneath and around the door that formed the shape of the cross. It is very powerful imagery. And I know sometimes those things go over people's heads because they don't really pay attention to that stuff. It's not important to them, but it adds to it. It does. Even if you don't pick up on it subconsciously having this exit sign behind Jenna Coleman's Constantine. And then in front of her is the doorway to what hell essentially where the demon is at. Yes. It is so good. And that's why I say this show is, is so well developed and intelligent because they're not just relying on, on, you know, the go-to traditional writing norms. They're also using filmic concepts to give the series a more cinematic scope. Yeah. And of course, the language of, of images is just as powerful as the verbal language itself. Even if we don't know exactly what it's saying, it's there. It's subconscious. And interestingly, David, I think you had said this a few moments ago. They alluded to bigger things in this series pertaining to Constantine. Yes. Then I want to say even the comic book did within those initial issues through the graphic novel firmly established a legacy of sorts, but the series alludes to something a bit bigger in scope or at least richer in mythos as it pertains to Constantine. And perhaps if we get a season two, they will delve into some of those elements. I, I like this aspect specifically because despite Gaiman claiming that this is not a gender swapped role, although it kind of is the argument against that he's merged these two and that's just fine because by the way, I, by the way I look at it, Don't just merge and swap if you're going to do it, right? If you're going to merge and swap characters, offer the viewers a different perspective, perspective. on the character yes. or add a layer of story that wasn't present. Yes. And they took other concepts pertaining to the ongoing, but currently at a standstill mapping out of the laughing magician bloodline. And that's what really worked for me because the laughing magician bloodline wasn't introduced at this point mm -hmm. in Constantine's history. And it wasn't introduced in the game and storyline either. I don't believe right away, not right away. It was actually later on, even after. Mm -hmm. But my point is, is that he is, despite what some of these Constantine babies and I love you, Constantine babies, I'm one of you. But when it comes to this point, I just don't agree I feel like he did a great job. And, and even though he gender swapped and, and, and got rid of the male version of Constantine, he's still paying tribute to Constantine yeah. by 
mapping out this larger storyline pertaining to the laughing magician. The moment Constantine's name was mentioned, what did Dream say? <laughs> he says, I know of a Constantine, a Constantine from hundreds of years ago. So right there, you get that introduction, which I believe that element was also in the comic books. Mm hmm. So I really like that because he's not forgetting about the history of Constantine, despite the fact that he did go and rip out some of the more DC eccentric aspects like the Justice League. And, yes. and of course, Dr. or John D's villain alias. Some of those in Arkham Asylum was removed as well yeah, from Arkham the series, but he didn't do that when it comes to the Constantine story. The Constantine line. story, he still kept that element because that, element of Constantine is still important to the story of Sandman. Even though some of those things were never his creation. Yes. That's why I'm saying it wasn't just him trying to pay tribute to himself. Well, this is Constantine. This is what I did in my comic book, so I'm going to do this. He took elements from other storylines and put that in as history into his series. Yes. And I thought that was a nice touch. And, and it showed that he does respect the character and cares. Yeah. Because like... It, it, the fact that does any of that make sense? I felt like I just rambled for like ten minutes. No, no, it makes sense because essentially, as I as I alluded earlier, Constantine was a John Constantine was a character that Neil Gaiman felt uh, really admired. That was created by Alan Moore, and like he always wanted to use the character of John Constantine, and there were times when he wasn't able to. So instead, he it makes sense that Gaiman would actually add to the mythos of Constantine, add to the mythos of like when he gets a shot like this, he's going to use every single element that as a fan of Constantine, you're going to throw in there. The fact that he threw in like the whole thing with Astra, I was actually really impressed because like that wasn't a big thing in the original Sandman. They alluded to the they new castle incident because wasn't he having nightmares about he it? He was having nightmares, but you yeah. didn't know right. what the nightmares were. That's right. Yeah. And then like the only thing that, that Morpheus would tell Constantine is, hey, your nightmare is not going to bother you anymore. But we know that what the nightmare was and the fact that Gaiman took this time to allude to Constantine's nightmare even more. And bring up Astra and bring up, you know, the whole exorcism thing shows that he, he really, really loves that character. Yeah. Even though he's not able to actually use John, he's still going to say, Hey, I'm going to still take what I could use, which was Joanna. And I'm going to add it to the mythos of the laughing man, the laughing magician. Now, speaking of the laughing magician bloodline, I have a list here of all the ancestors and that's why I get excited when he starts talking about the Constantine, Constantine legacy, legacy because I like, Oh shit. What if this series does super well on Netflix and then we get a spinoff series on, let's say it's not John Constantine. Let's say it's just a story about the laughing magician bloodline. That would be so great. Especially if they go into the past, like if it's a period piece. So the very first ancestor that's listed here is Constantine, <laughs> Constantine or Constantine, depending on how you want to pronounce it, but it's spelled differently. It's spelled K O N S T A N T Y N. He was from 
400 AD. He was the legendary king of England after the death of King Arthur. Yes. And is the oldest known ancestor of John Constantine. And he was responsible for pushing the influence, uh, pushing the influence pagan gods aside by having them incorporated into early Christianity. That's interesting, Mm -hmm. which basically they're taking the historical Constantine. That's what they did. The one that made peace between Roman and Christian beliefs and merged the two, which eventually formed Catholicism. I did not even realize that's what they did until I just read this. Yeah. Uh, Constantine 500 AD. Deceased. Then you have the 16th century Jack Constantine. Then you have the 17th century Constantine. Piotr Constantine. Piotr. Piotr Constantine. Piotr? Piotr. He's Russian, I'm assuming. Yeah. Terrible accent. <laughs> then you have Harry Constantine. Whoever came up with that name, they just weren't trying. Harry, come <laughs> Harry on. Constantine. The thing I liked about Harry Constantine. Same though, thing with Jack Constantine, too. Like, how basic is that name? Jack. The thing I the thing I liked about the idea of Harry Constantine was he was he he was like supposed to be, I think he was in the Civil War or World War One or World War II, I think. Mm-hmm. But like he was supposed to be kind of like the mirror image of John. <laughs> yeah. So all of these so far have all been introduced in a Hellblazer series at some point. Let me go back. I'm sorry. Constantine 400 AD was introduced in Hellblazer Annual One. Mm-hmm. Constantine 500 AD was introduced and only seen in Destiny, a Chronicle of Deaths Foretold. I have no idea what that is. Jack Constantine was introduced or at least mentioned in Sandman issue 13. Yes. The Russian Constantine, his first appearance, which I do remember this, is the Trenchcoat Brigade. So I do remember that issue number one, and his last appearance was Trenchcoat Brigade issue four. That's why he seemed vaguely familiar. Harry Constantine was introduced in Hellblazer issue 62. And he was the one that goes from 1619 to 1993 AD. And if, if I'm right, the, the thing that he's was the messed World up. War, he's the Civil War one, you said? Yeah. And if I'm not, the, another messed up thing was that because I remember parts of the comic, I think Constantine, like un, uh, John Constantine digs up his grave or something. Yeah. And then murders him again. Fucked up. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, he killed his own <laughs> ancestor. Hey. This is why John does not play, play well with others. <laughs> then there's an 18th century Hugh Constantine. And he was introduced in Papa Midnight issue number three. And his last appearance was Papa Midnight issue number five. Lord George Constantine, 1730 AD, was first mentioned in Sandman issue number 29. Yeah. So do you see what he's doing? Just in the opening five episodes, you can already see that he is working towards that bigger story. And I remember that basically... Neil Gaiman, I'm I'm speaking of, of course. And I remember in the Sandman issue, George Constantine is the father of Joanna. Okay. (laughs) Then you have Lady Harriet Constantine. She was introduced in Sandman issue number 29. Then, of course, we have Joanna Constantine from October 1760 to 1859. If you're going by comic book canon and she was first introduced in issue 13 of Sandman. So I was off. Mouse Constantine, 1778 AD. What is that? 
Joanna Constantine's illegitimate daughter who Joanna kept as her ward. Yeah. I don't remember that. Why don't I remember that? That's from Lady Constantine. Yeah, that's from the, the series Lady Constantine. And yeah, the most messed up that. part, most messed up part about that was like Mouse essentially was the stand-in for Astra. And the story is basically the Constantines are cursed because Mouse Constantine gets dragged to hell. Okay. Similar to like what happens to Astra. Yeah. I like that parallel. James Constantine, 1767 AD, was introduced in Hellblazer issue 105. And then Dark Conrad Constantine, 1780 AD, and his first appearance was Swamp Thing issue 114. Of course, the Swamp Thing issue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot. If the gods of DC will please bless us. There's a lot they can get into can when it imagine, comes to the bloodline of the Laughing Magicians. Can you imagine a series, The Laughing Magicians, on Netflix? Oh, my God, please. And every single episode is like a different version of Constantine. <laughs> well, you got to have one definitive Constantine that maybe is the thread. Yeah. Like he, the no, through no, line. You, you would make John the narrator. There you go. Make John the narrator, and he's going through his bloodline. And... <laughs> Because it would make sense too, because like, I would like to actually see John actually that scene where he digs up his own ancestor and just murder him. <laughs> yeah. All right. Because we focus on Constantine eccentric elements, we will not delve into every single character. In fact, I want to talk about Sturridge briefly and then move on. Okay. Tom Sturridge, in my opinion, is the perfect choice for Morpheus. He was born to play the role. It was oh, exactly... Absolutely what my mind had envisioned all those years ago when first reading Sandman, the voice David is exactly as it was in my head. Yes. And something as abstract as dreams presence was perfectly embodied and made tangible in pretty much the same way I had created in my mind. Well, the, the thing that was really amazing was when you read Sandman, the comic, Morpheus's dialogue is presented in these like balloons that are like jagged and in black text and they have like this coldness to it. Right. Yeah. And then as soon as uh, Tom Struthage start speaking the lines of Morpheus of it going, this is that feeling. That's the feeling of what that balloon was trying to say. This cold darkness of like Morpheus where it's like, it's, it's almost like this straight deadpan reality. Yeah. <laughs> and, but it's like, it echoes and I love it. I love when he started talking because it was like, I was worried. How are they going to get that same feeling? How are they going to, because the, the voice of Morpheus in the, in the comics is very important because he's not the atypical superhero who goes through and has superpowers like Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman, like the Trinity his powers are more s subtle and subtext. And with, when Gaiman was telling the story of it, the way his narration works for characters, I wanted to know how do you actually transition that and get that same feeling, that same vibe. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I heard Tom's voice, I was like, like okay, that makes sense. Yeah. The cold, deadpan there's no emotion <laughs> yeah which 
also lends itself well to not jumping too far ahead. But I want to say in issue six, when he talks to his sister yes. and he starts understanding humanity a bit. So that whole like distance in his look, you know, that you're talking about, that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I want to make sure I'm following. Um, th- th- it, works it works with what they are attempting to do with the second half of the series. So one of the tactics employed to keep the show focused was the removal of all of the, I suppose you can say top tier DC inclusions. Yes. For example, one of the main antagonists, John D whose alter ego is known as Dr. Destiny. Dr. Destiny. He's a big deal in the DC world, uh, which, you know, that, that pseudonym was removed. It wasn't mentioned. There was no allusions to his uh, villainous reign and near destruction that he bestowed upon the Justice League. Yes. In the comic books, this is a character that was committed to Arkham Asylum and had nearly destroyed the Justice League. Though some viewers, Dave, appeared to have some concerns over these exclusions. I feel like we, I think both of us w- would agree that ultimately it needed to be done. Whether it was licensing issues or not, it, that's not the point. Yeah. If Heinberg and Gaiman would have included, if they would have included these bigger DC cosmological aspects, it would have distracted more than support the immediate story. Exactly. If you got to remember a lot of people, a lot of people don't know what Sandman is. Mm -hmm. They don't know that the DC property. There are people who watched it, reached out to me and said, Hey, I'm watching Sandman on Netflix. There's a Joanna Constantine character in this. I'm like, aren't you a Constantine fan? Is this, is this DC? And I was like, yes. yes. Like, and they're like, I had no idea. Most people on Netflix, when they're, they're just watching TV shows. They're, yeah. They don't know everything about DC comic books. So if you were to throw in Dr. Destiny, it would have changed the vibe, the vibe of the show. If you would have included names like the Justice League, it would have distracted people. It would have, it would have taken people out of the actual story, the relevant story. I'm going to say something that basically is probably heresy. To a lot of comic books. No, how dare you? I'm going to burn you at the stake. (laughs) I am going to be honest and say that one of the issues I have with a lot of comic book adaptations, whether it's DC or Marvel, the problem that I have with it is people focus too much on the outside. They don't focus enough on the story. It's been happening a lot more. And more people say, oh, but what is the, what about this character? What about this Easter egg? What is this character? Who cares? More and more people <laughs> are concerned with things that don't matter. Things that don't like matter. Charlie's Theron showing up at the end of Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange. Like the articles out there are not about reviewing the movie. It's about, oh my God, Charlie's Theron showed up in Doctor Strange. This means that we're going to get this movie and this storyline and this, and this is what it means for Doctor Strange. Exactly. What about the movie itself, bro? Exactly. And that is the one thing I was going to say. I was absolutely going to be terrified that Salmon would get turned into. That's what I was nervous about too. Because like... I like the little nods to the to the DC universe. I do. Of course. However, I do not want them to damage 
the essence of the story. Okay, so a good example of this, and I don't know if people are are watching this or not, but if they if you're not, you should. It is a pretty good show, even though it breaks every fucking television rule. It's one. It's one is the only show that I'll say breaks a lot of television rules, and yet it works because it's built on the backs of comic book knowledge that almost everyone, even if you're not a comic book reader, knows, and that is Batman. Yes. Titans. Titans. On HBO Max. They do these things where they drop names. They have characters pop in for one episode with zero development. They have inclusions in terms of aspects of the DC world like lore for example the the pit yes i always forget the name of the pit lazarus pit the lazarus pit it's in five minutes in an episode that brings back a character to life with no development you they never tell you what the pit is why it's there what it does zero background to me that's bad writing now it works in that show because that show literally Simply writes on everything that came before. Yes. It's that, built for fans. It's it's a show specifically, you're right, specifically written for Batman fans. If you understand the world of Batman, then little development is needed and we can focus simply on the character moments. Yes. The, the things that motivate the characters itself and we don't have to be weighed down by exploring and explaining how this world operates because it's in the world of Batman. You should already know about Batman. And that's what I was afraid they were going to do with Sandman. Because that's what the comic book does. You have the introduction of Dr. Destiny with not a lot of fleshing out of his past, his villainy. Yes. You're expected when you're reading the Sandman comic to just understand what this guy is about. And it works for comic books because it's the nature of how comic books are all interconnected and the way they're written, right? Yes. It doesn't work for TV. So ultimately, I feel like the decision to remove some of these elements, it was, it was sheer genius because which, it removed unnecessary distraction. Which shows the genius of Gaiman as a writer to understand this is an example of removing to make your, make your story pop more. You remove elements and you remove the fat. You know, people say, trim the fat, trim the fat off. I trim the fat every day at three. I hit the treadmill. <laughs> hit the treadmill. But like every time I, every time I talk to other writers and everything, they always say, oh, the, everyone's always saying you got to trim the, trim this and trim this and trim this. I don't want to trim anything because it takes away from my story. Mm -hmm. No, we're making your story more centered. There's you, two things that everyone should trim in their life. Their ball hair and a television script. If and you're a television writing. script. Yeah, exactly. Do, do you back that up? Dave? Absolutely. Do you co-sign that? Oh yeah. Manscaped baby. <laughs> Go ahead. What were you saying? I'm sorry for interrupting with that stupid <laughs> comment. <laughs> but like, that's the thing with when I watched, especially the five episodes that we're talking about, the fact that Gaiman showed True. What, what makes good writing is the ability to look at something and fine tune it. Yeah. I don't need to actually tell about Dr. Destiny's background because Dr. Destiny's background does not pertain to the story of dream. The importance of Dr. Uh, John D is the fact that he has the Ruby. Mm -hmm. That's it. 
That's the point. Yeah. That's the point. And, and I and because of what how they handle this, I have a greater respect for Neil Gaiman. And absolutely. I've always been a big fan of his work, but I have a a different level of respect for him because obviously this is a project he cares about. Yeah. Obviously. But where most creators find it hard to separate themselves from the work, he's able to separate himself from his baby and do what's necessary in order for this to work as a TV show. Yes. And not just a shitty TV show, but a well-written, well-developed TV show. TV show. Now, on that note, Dave, we have to bring this episode to an end. When we get back into doing this discussion, we will jump into the replacement of one character that did get under my skin. I want to see if anyone (laughs) knows which character that is. Because I don't feel like there was a reason for them to remove the character. The character played a relatively minor role in the comic book. I don't understand why they couldn't use him. I I see your brain working already. (laughs) But we'll talk about that. And then we're going to talk about our favorite episodes of the first five. First five? Okay. Then we'll talk about the development history behind Sandman. Then we're going to grade episodes one through five. That's what we'll do during our second discussion. Okay. All right. I want to thank everyone for listening. Be sure to find our show on iTunes and Spotify. Just search House of Mystery. Also, we offer a companion show that's exclusively available to our Patreon subscribers. So if you go to patreon.com slash Digital, you can pledge just a dollar and you'll gain access to the show, which we call the Oblivion Bar. And it's essentially this show, just a little bit shorter, and it's a little more casual. We play fast and loose. We shoot from the hip during that show. Yeah. There is no there is no structure in There's that no show. Rules. No, rules. no rules. No rules. That show feels like a shitty Netflix binge <laughs> streaming show. <laughs> All right. On that note, I want to thank everyone for listening, and thank you, David. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers, wankers. See you never.